Hi, this is Janet Lansbury. Welcome to Unruffled. Today I have a special guest who also happens to be a dear friend of mine. Lynn Miner Rosen is an ADHD coach and a board certified career development coach. She is an expert on ADHD. She was a special ed teacher in New York City for 12 years. Her own child has ADHD and she found out that she does as well. So she has personal experience and a lot of encouragement to share. Her mission these days is to help people feel supported, empowered, loved, and to find the career that they love. Thank you for being here. Hi, Janet. I am so excited. This is just, this is a lifetime dream to be here with you. That's so sweet. Yeah, so it's going to be hard to not laugh or cry. So everybody, you should know that Lynn and I grew up together. We were in grade school together, and we've stayed in touch all these years. Lynn has blossomed into this amazing career with two specialties, really. She is an expert in ADHD, and she's also a career coach for people with ADHD and also everybody. And she is credentialed in that work as well. So she works in those fields kind of separately and also together. So thrilled to have you here. Oh, Um, thank you. Likewise. (laughs) And wanted to ask you first for people that don't really know, what is ADHD? I think the most important thing that people need to know is that it's not a disability in the sense that people can't have their own wonderful lives. So it used to be called ADD or ADHD. So we hear a lot of people still saying ADD, thinking that that's different than ADHD. And what we found about 13 years ago is that it's all ADHD, but there's three types. There's the inattentive type. The hyperactive type is what we normally think about, you know, little boys. And there's combination. We also used to think that ADHD were mostly little boys and they would grow out of it. And now what we're finding in the last 20 years, the research has been so incredible that we're finding that, no, people don't grow out of it. And the women and girls have ADHD, but girls don't show their symptoms till usually middle school. So back then, they would diagnose little kids in elementary school, and they would say the little boys that were running around hyper that couldn't sit in circle time had ADHD, and that was that. And now we're learning that it's a lot more than that. It's not just sitting in circle time. It's not just about focus. It's not just about talking or being hyperactive, that it affects a lot of areas of our brain. We call those executive functions. And that's where the ADHD you know, really can be a challenge for kids and parents. And so what does it affect? I mean, if you could generalize or maybe just talk about the different types. How does this show up in children? Like what should parents notice to get a screening or to find out more to see what help they can get? Most parents hear from their teachers first. And that's good. If I brought that up to a parent for the first time, I wouldn't want them to worry about it. It's not a bad thing. Think of it like this. Your kid has a Ferrari brain and tricycle brakes. I love that. So, you know, we want to welcome the brain power, but they don't know how to manage it. My son had ADHD. We knew very early on and he didn't want to sit in circle time. 
we were at some mommy and me that where's Joe? He has to sit in circle time. And I kept thinking, why? Why does he have to sit there? Why can't he just, you know, wander around? So that's part of where parents will start to see it through teachers. But going back to the question about executive functioning, I think that's really important to know. There's a lot of myths and misunderstandings about ADHD, and they're passed on you know, from what our parents told us, or what their neighbors told them, or even if they come from a culture that doesn't believe in it. You know, so there's a lot of things that can get in the way of getting a diagnosis or knowing that your kid might have something. And my suggestion, if you're not sure, is to always see a specialist. Not all pediatricians Not all of them are trained in the current ADHD research, and they don't know the correct procedure. So we want to make sure that those kids see an expert, a developmental pediatrician and a neuropsychologist. To get a screening and to find out. And what is the screening like? It's usually probably takes three to four, you know, different days, maybe consecutive days or two days. And it's Fun. It's actually toys for the kids to play with. And, you know, what's bigger, what's smaller. You know, they do a whole testing on, they'll test their IQ, they'll test because they want to see if it's a learning disability as opposed to ADHD. A learning disability is when you have one specific area that you struggle in. And then ADHD is more of a difficulty with attention or like a difficulty, like you said, putting brakes on all the distractions. It's executive functioning, and it includes memory, short-term memory and long-term memory. It includes how kids think about themselves. They tend to feel harder and express harder. Like those are deep feelers. So little things, they feel more. It's really also managing their health. You know, they'll eat when they want to eat. Their sleep might be different. Um, we sometimes think that people with ADHD are on a different circadian rhythm. They want to stay up late and they have a hard time getting up in the morning. That's a very ADHD type thing. The research is showing a possible shift that the circadian in our brains are different. And what I've heard you say before is that uh, there is a whole spectrum and that oftentimes there's also maybe learning disabilities that are involved with certain children that have ADHD. Absolutely. I'm so glad you brought that up because ADHD never comes alone. It always comes with something else. Always. It never is just ADHD. So it might be anxiety, might be depression, might be bipolar. So those things tend to be the alert that there might be something else going on. You know, most people aren't able to diagnose ADHD by just looking at a kid. You can't because it's an invisible disability. But it's the other things that come with ADHD that we pick up on. That's when the ADHD gets diagnosed is when we say, oh, we see depression, anxiety, possibly sleep issues, hyper-focusing on video games, having a hard time transitioning from one activity to another without advance notice. That's a real ADHD thing. We call that time blindness. And some young people have a very hard time thinking about the future because of their ADHD. They can't. They don't know how to visualize their future. And it's so stressful. It's like too stressful. They don't think about 
where they're going next or what they're doing next. They're in the moment. With this Ferrari that they're driving. Ferrari. (laughs) Think of what's happening next. You're like trying to manage the Ferrari. And if they're forgetful or procrastinate, those are all those negative words. It's not on purpose. They're not trying to do that. It's a lot of other things. It could be memory. It could be fear. It's also ADHD. People are very, very, very sensitive to what other people think about them. And that's like an intense sensitivity. That makes sense. I want to ask you a little about some of the therapies and what parents can do. But also, I just wanted to note, because I keep hearing this coming up, in my world, parents saying, I found out my child has ADHD, and I found out that I do as well. So, you know, how does that come about that the parent, they didn't know all these years, how does that feel? You have told me that, and I only just learned this recently about you, I never knew Uh that you have ADHD. Yeah. So how does that feel to, I don't know, look back on all these things that you thought were your fault or just something wrong with you and to see it in this beautiful, forgiving, bright light. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, and, and we are getting so smart. The research we're learning about ADHD right now is just incredible. You know, study after study, and we're learning that untreated ADHD shortens your lifespan because of the things that you do, the The impulsivity, the stress, but also not taking care of your body, not taking care of your sleep. Many people with ADHD self-medicate and pot is not a good self-medication for ADHD. The other thing is there's a lot of controversy about ADHD in meds because people think right away, if you diagnose my kid with ADHD, yeah, I'm going to have to put them on medicine. And that's what I hear the most from parents. I worked for a middle school in New York. I was the special education teacher. I was the IEP and 504 coordinator. And it was a school with a thousand kids. And I had to sign off on every single IEP. So I did a hundred a year where I was in the meeting and reading the reports and reading everything and uh, talking to parents And their biggest concern is giving medication to their kids. And I totally get it. But if you go to the right professional, the first line of defense should not be medication. I would say to your parents, if you go to a doctor and the first thing they want to do is give your kid medicine, get a second opinion. You have the right. You don't have to do that. If you go to the right doctor. There are really good therapies. So cognitive behavior therapy is really good. And they use pictures and they use real life experiences and they uh, involve the parents and the families. And there's also dialectical behavior therapy. So if you look that up, you can find it on the internet. And you know, there's a lot of good therapists that do that. Also, We can do a lot of natural things. The biggest thing that helps kids with ADHD is exercise. Wow. The biggest. And I think when you say that I got diagnosed in my 50s with ADHD and I look back at all the things I did, if I didn't dance as much as I did, I probably would not have done well in my life. That saved me. Dancing, gymnastics, that was what I needed. I had no idea that exercise was that powerful. Exercise, drinking water, 
And I talk a lot about this because I, I'm a research geek. That's all I do. And there was a study about 300 people. This is like in the last three years. They came in thirsty and they were anxious. And they were all saying they were fighting anxiety. And it turned out that they were all dehydrated. And when you're dehydrated, it makes you feel anxious. Oftentimes, people with ADHD, when they feel that anxiety, they don't know why. And sometimes drinking water can be a big help. I say that like if kids are taking a test, they should have water. I had one client that I put on his accommodations at college that he's allowed to have water at his tests. And there was a professor that said, no water bottles allowed in for the test. And I'm like, uh-uh, you have an accommodation for that. And that's why I step in and help them. Because water can help you manage your anxiety. So water, exercise, what are some of the other ways that we can help children or adults? I think if they're ready to transition or you want them to get off of the video or stop doing something or you have to go to another activity, the best thing is to just say, okay, 10 more minutes. Okay, five more minutes. You know, give them the heads up because that transition can cause complete chaos. And I'm sure all your parents are going, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, that (laughs) happens all the time. Because when you grab a kid and you say, okay, we're leaving now, let's go, you know, turn off the video game, come on, it's freak out. So what you want to do is respect that and just say, okay, 10 minutes, we'll be leaving. Also, using a clock, having watches and a clock, a digital clock. No, I mean, a, a, uh, a whatever they call it, a regular. <laughs> there is a name for it. There clock. is a name, but we just don't use that term very often. But the regular clock shows you how much time you have yes. until the next thing. And that's why exactly. I remember a teacher telling me that a long time ago. And I yeah. thought, wow, that's why I like regular clocks better. I don't have to subtract and yes. add and do all that. I yes. can just look at it and see it visually. Um, And that's why it's in every classroom, because we all know, we look in a classroom, oh, the clock's there 10 minutes more, and then we go to the next class. Right. And then in terms of the screen time, you know, screens are so engaging for all of us, and video games are so exciting and engaging. And I know that there is some research, it's not quite conclusive, but it links attention issues to a lot of screen use. No doubt. And we've known about this for 20 years. That is a tricky thing, and you have to put limits on it. But, you know, even when my kids were little, I'm here in L.A. visiting my son, who I haven't seen, and he remembers that we didn't watch TV in our house, and, you know, we had limited time for those things, and he's not mad about it. Oh, no. (laughs) My kids are the same. They, you know, were a little annoyed at the time because there were certain things, there would be a birthday party where they were showing a film that Mm. was a PG-13 and my kids were seven or eight years old. And uh, I said, absolutely not. And so they were a little annoyed at the time, but they definitely appreciate it now. You know, we're caring about the brain development. It's important. It's so important. And we can see the difference in kids uh, that are now 30 and 40 in terms of reading, in terms of writing. Yeah, the brain is definitely changing. Um, and yeah, I'm sure there are negatives to that, but maybe there are also positives to that. I try to keep an open mind because yeah. I, I was so strict about that with my children and I believe in it very strongly, especially in those first few years where they're yeah. developing so quickly. But I know that times are always changing and it's, yeah. You, you still have to do what's right yes. for the best of your kid, for yeah. sure. 
So when you found out about your son, Joe, is that what led you to find out about yourself? Or was it much later? Yes. So when Joe had, I remember, you know, talking about it. And I didn't think that I had ADHD. But then I went through a few trauma things myself. 9-11, I lived on Long Island, and I could see the burning towers from my backyard. And my kids were in kindergarten and second grade. And it was just so frightening. I went to a doctor because I was so anxious. And, you know, I was a woman that was anxious. And what do you give a woman who's anxious? You give her an anxiety pill. You know, so it was just a whole bunch of things like that that happened. And it was... And then the pill didn't help? Or you no. Didn't, I, well, yeah. I would get a sleeping pill or, uh-huh. you know, an anti-anxiety pill. Right. I probably went to five or six doctors. And then I went, I went to a CHAD conference. And CHAD is Children and Adults with ADHD. It's a big, huge worldwide conference. And I speak at the conferences now, but I went to my first one about nine years ago. And it was given by Dr. Ellen Littman. She had just finished doing research on ADHD in women and girls. Because we really didn't know. This is so new. And I sat in her slideshow talking about her research and just cried. Every slide was like, oh, my God, that was me. You know, talking about things that we did as kids. Driving too fast, too many boyfriends, not working to my potential in school. You know, very, very sensitive to what other people thought about me and, you know, wanted to be the best person. You know, and I had a very strong mom and. Anyway, Dr. Lippman was amazing. And if any of you want to read that book, it's ADHD for Women and Girls. And it's just shocking, you know, when you read it. So I really didn't do anything about it. Again, just typical ADHD. Oh, no, not me. Oh, even when you cried, you still didn't think it was you? No. Oh. I did not go get a diagnosis. I just kept going. And then it, when I moved to Florida... Like, it was hard to move to a whole... I didn't understand what was going on. And then I understood, you know, this is like that transition thing. It's really hard to transition. And then I finally got a diagnosis. So I walked in, the doctor goes, oh, yeah. (laughs) And my friend, Jill, who's an ADHD coach, she said, duh. I'm like, well, why didn't you tell me? You've known me all these years. You never said... Why didn't she tell you? She thought you already knew. Yeah. And I'm classic. I can look back at everything. Wow, that makes me want to cry. And I remember Dr. Earhart, who was our dentist. I was a little girl, like seven. And I remember Dr. Earhart saying to my mom, your daughter's grinding her teeth. She's a nervous wreck. And my mom's like, well, that's ridiculous. That can't possibly be. And that was the end of that. Wow. Well, I'm so glad that you found out and so you could forgive yourself. So let's veer into this other wonderful service that you provide, that you are credentialed in, and that you help so many people with. And that is, who am I and what do I want to do with my life? What's my calling? What's my career supposed to be? When you brought up the exercise, I was thinking, because I know that this is part of your work and it's totally mine as well, you trust children to find their own interests. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe you expose them to something, but you, you really trust that they know themselves better than we know them. And we don't want to judge them. We just want to encourage them as much as we can 
to keep going. And you chose those things because you wanted to do them. No one told you to go in gymnastics or dance. Right. You found those. And so, you know, when we say, you know, maybe you could help your child with more exercise, it's so important to allow them to be the ones to, you know, maybe they just want to do jumping jacks. Maybe they want to do. And that's what my parents did. Uh, You find what you like. Okay, you don't like violin? Try tennis. Tennis isn't for you? Okay, try yoga. And we did. We all picked something different that we liked. And that's huge. You know, Temple Grandin is one of my idols. And she has Asperger's, which is much more complex than ADHD. It's on the autism spectrum. But she's an incredibly um, successful doctor, scientist, engineer, writer, public speaker. I mean, she's just, you know, phenomenal. And she always says, you know, these kids won't know what they like until they do it. Like show your kids how to screw on a hose and water the plants. Because they won't know if they like doing that or how to do it unless you show them. So it's just exposing your kids and letting them try a whole bunch of things. And letting them learn about themselves, what makes them excited, what gets them excited, what's fun, what are their dreams, you know? Yeah, it sounds like that requires relaxing our own, maybe, which I think is probably much more prevalent today than when you and I were kids, parents were a lot more trusting in those ways, you know, much more letting go. And, you know, there wasn't that kind of managing that could become micromanaging the parents believe it their job to do you know I feel for these parents that you know now my child is ADHD I better get them on a team or whatever when that could be totally not the right fit it requires really finding that place of trust in our child and how that's probably one of the most important things in terms of who they are and not going with our reflex to judge and correct and say well oh no you couldn't do that that wouldn't work for you or my uncle, you know, Sam did that and it was terrible for him. He was bored out of his mind. Like, you shouldn't do that. Or I tried it and I didn't like it, you know. So really understanding that your child is a separate person with their own journey. Oh, yeah. I mean, Janet, you're right on. And it happens all the time. And I work with, I start at age 17 and work with people who are 70. But lately, I've been getting a lot of 30 and 40-year-olds coming back and going, my mom said this is the career I should do. My parents wanted me to do this, and I hate it. But can I share a story about my kid? You know, I'd love to talk about my own kids. Yes, yes, yes. I was just talking to Joe last night, and we were talking about this. When he was little, when he was very, very little, he wanted to be either a firefighter or a police officer or a limousine driver. And I mean, I would always say, Joe, you can do anything you want to do. Always said that to him. And I wonder what a firefighter does. I wonder what their day is really like. So that's how I used to talk to him. And I also used to read to him and my other child, the Berenstein Bears books that talk about careers. Because when you think about little kids, all they know are parents, doctors, and teachers. They don't know what other people do. So we, as parents, we definitely can educate them and share and talk about it. But we have to try really hard not to direct and say that's good or that's bad. And I never did that with Joe. And I got a lot of pressure from my neighborhood, from parents saying, you can't let your kid be a firefighter. You can't let your kid be a police officer. That's too dangerous. Or, 
you know, Jewish kids aren't firefighters. I used to hear that a lot, which is really, I know. I was like, where is that coming from? And I had no clue what they were talking about. So I always kept saying to Joe, I want you to do what makes you feel good. I want you to find something that's your passion. And if this is it, then that's awesome. So at 13, he wanted to have a walkie-talkie, and he started volunteering at the fire department at 13. Worked his way up. He was a lifeguard at a pool. Then he was a lifeguard at the ocean. Then he worked for the Nassau County Police Department as a paramedic. He has a degree in nursing from Adelphi. And he's a New York State trooper. And if I had said to Joe, no, you can't do that, he wouldn't be the amazing person he is. This is what he wanted. And he wouldn't be a fulfilled person. Oh. I think that's the most, you know, even more important that, oh. you know, what do these 30, 40 year olds do when they realize that they have been kind of living out a path that wasn't their choice? Do they get upset at their parents? She's nodding her head. Yeah. I always saw it as this interdirected kind of precious thread that we want to keep our child in touch with, you know, by allowing them to direct their own play, by allowing them to direct their own extracurriculars, you know, decide things and, you know, go on their path. And like, what happens when somebody gets totally off of that? How do you get it back? Like, how do you help those people? All the ages that you work with, how do you help them get back on track when they've gotten off? Yeah, so, you know, the career development process is, to me, a process. It starts in high school, and it's year after year, and it's just, it's not something you just start when you're a junior in college. It's a whole life process. Maybe it's keeping a journal and writing down things that you really love and you don't love. Or what I do with adult clients is I have them do their job history, but I have them list what tasks they did on each of those jobs. And then, did you like it or didn't you like it? Which part of that job? And so this one client, he remembered this job. He worked in the deli and he hated the deli, but he loved slicing the sandwiches and making them and, you know, and wrapping them all nice. And, you know, so we started to talk about those past dreams and we considered culinary school as an option. And it was just exploring himself, exploring his interests what his skills are, what skills he wants to learn, what things he never knew and would like to learn about. It opened up a whole new world for him of possibilities. And that's another myth with ADHD is I'm sure a lot of your parents hear it is that if you have ADHD, there are only certain jobs you should have. We used to hear, oh, I have ADHD. I can't have a desk job. And I would say, well, what does that look like? What What do you mean by that? And then COVID hit and I'm like, oh, everybody's got a desk job. <laughs> <laughs> and same thing with the kids. Oh, I can't take online classes. Well, sure enough, they're taking online classes, right? So people with ADHD can adjust to the challenges. It's finding the passion and the motivation that makes them happy, connecting something in their life, in their leisure that they love with their work. And then also you can change, right? Like you can be so into this, you know, like yeah. if, if your son, if Joe was so into this police thing, but then suddenly he was, you know, I've kind of explored that to the end of my interest. And well, that's true too, else. that you know, uh, that's another open. challenge. 
is that a lot of parents in their generation, they'd go to college, get their degree, get their job, stay in the same job for 30 years. But it's not like that anymore. It's not a straight path. It's not a linear path. So yeah, there is so much opportunity to change. You know, we don't have to be stuck. So I tell college students, college is your job training before the job. Take as many classes as you can. Learn about as many careers. Ask your professors about careers. Volunteer. Join clubs just to see the world. Open up all the possibilities. And how does that mix with the College is saying you're not going to get requirements if you don't get your major right now. They told us that when you and I were in college, right? Just pick a major. It didn't matter. And it's still true now. You know, so I studied business administration and marketing. And then I went into the Garment Center and worked my way up to be a buyer. And I was a buyer at Lord & Taylor in New York. Ran a $20 million petite sportswear business. And then I went into sales. And then I got married and had kids. And then I went into teaching. I went, I went back to school in my 40s. And then what got you into the, well, it was your son, but that probably Well, my second one, you. my young, so I had another child, uh, have another child, <laughs> still have that child, child's 25 now. And it was a scary time. It was, uh, it was nobody's fault, just he got stuck in my birth canal and came out blue and not breathing. It was bad. And they told me I had cerebral palsy and they didn't know how bad it was going to be and if he was going to make it out of the hospital. And so, you know, as a mom, you go right into, I want to see every report. I want to see every, right. everything. I want to be in every single meeting. And it was years and years and years of IEP meetings and doctor's appointments and he had physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, five days a week. And, you know, schools and the whole thing. And they also have ADHD. Yeah, he has yeah. ADHD. Yeah, yeah. They have ADHD and and probably other things, probably mm -hmm. uh, borderline on the autism spectrum, maybe. Uh, extremely high IQ. I actually did my thesis on twice exceptional children. Back when I was doing my thesis, twice exceptional children meant somebody who was significantly disabled. Right on the low end, but extremely high IQ, that would be mm -hmm. twice disabled. You know, because having that high IQ was a disability as well throughout schooling to get yeah. him the services he needed for that. Yeah, because you're thinking outside the box. You're not fitting yeah. into the conventional education that they're trying to give you. Um, so that's when you were inspired to go get your special ed. Well, I, I wanted to go back to work and mm -hmm. I wanted to have a career because I was going through a divorce and I wanted, I knew I was going to be on my own. I wanted to support my kids. I also knew they were off on summers, had summers off, vacations off. So how do you find a job like that? You'd be a teacher. So I went back to school to be a teacher and then interviewed to be a teacher in my 40s. And they said I was too old to be an elementary school teacher. I had two little kids at home, and they said that I was too old to be an People elementary school teacher. anymore, I don't think. You know, my sister, she just got her nursing degree. She's in her early 60s. She is a nurse. There is ageism. They probably can't say it, but they said it to me. So I continued and did a second master's in special education. And that actually was the best thing I ever did. And then I was a special ed teacher for 12 years in New York City. Wow. Well, you are 
an inspiration. No, you are. You, (laughs) Miss Lynn, Mrs. Lansbury, all my clients follow you. All my clients. That's so sweet. Well, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. I I know that people are going to be as interested in this as, Mm. as I was. A lot of these things I didn't know. Do you have anything coming up um, important that you want me to mention? I do group coaching, uh, which is a new thing. So I, I do groups for six people, but I usually do mostly individual coaching. And I do have a, a Facebook group and I'm on social media and I do all of that stuff too. Great. Well, you're a gift. Thank you. You can find out more about Lynn Minor Rosen's programs at lmrcoaching.com. And please check out some of the other podcasts on my website, JanetLansbury.com. There are many of them, and they're all indexed by subject and category, so you should be able to find whatever topic you might be interested in. And both of my books are available in paperback at Amazon, No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame, and Elevating Child Care, A Guide to Respectful Parenting. You can get them in ebook at Amazon, Apple, Google Play, or BarnesandNoble.com, and in audio at Audible.com. Actually, you can get a free audio copy of either book at Audible by following the link in the liner notes of this podcast. Thank you so much for listening and all your kind support. We can do this.